Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 6, The Good, the Bad, and the Foolish. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can easily find Episode 1 of Season 1 at 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out the number. Otherwise, brace yourself for a conversation with God's voice telling His side of your story. Now, if you've been paying attention, you've noticed the change of command in Judah. Well, to not notice that, you'd have to have stopped listening altogether. But what you've also noticed is that with the succession of rulers in the south, there's been no change in the north. Jeroboam is still up there, getting harder and crustier in his defiance with every passing year. Well, after ruling twenty-two years, Jeroboam finally sleeps with his ancestors too, and his son Nadab reigns briefly over Israel. 1 Kings 14.20 and 15.25 Nadab makes no changes nor reforms to the status quo, in contrast to his more righteous southern counterpart Asa, who is still alive in Chronicles. Nadab briefly continues the pattern of idolatrous worship begun by his father Jeroboam. We say briefly because this is not to be a tale of the house of Jeroboam versus the house of David for generation after generation. As Jeroboam and now his son Nadab have chosen to trust in other gods, Israel's help will have to come from them. As we promised Jeroboam back when he sent his wife to Shiloh, as a result of his leading the entire nation away and astray from us, his family's ruling role is forfeit. Thus, when a challenger to the northern throne rises up from the tribe of Issachar, a clearly ambitious fellow named Baasha, Nadab is on his own or at least has only his other gods on his team, which means he's on his own. 1 Kings 15.27 As you can imagine, Baasha isn't trying to follow or honor me either, and embraces the preemptive tactic of wiping out his rival's heirs so that they cannot come after him. We warned Jeroboam about this back in 1 Kings 14.14, but Jeroboam wouldn't listen insisting on doing things his own way, not thinking about how generations after him will pay the price for his defiance. Just as many in your habitat are so consumed with themselves that they give no thought to generational consequence rippling from their actions into the future, can you say climate change? Well, Baasha follows in Jeroboam's footsteps, essentially forcing the people into the worship of smorgas gods so that there's no way for them to be true to me. Wanting to give Baasha a real chance at change, I send him my word through a new triple-use prophet, Jehu, warning the northern king that he will suffer Jeroboam's fate if he walks in Jeroboam's steps. In the end, though not quite yet, unless he changes his ways, and here's his chance to, Baasha's sins will catch up with him just as fully as Jeroboam's caught up with him. And so, we are at a moment here 
with Baasha ruling up north in Israel and the not-dead-yet Asa down in Judah for a while together. And, of course, they fight with one another. There are still good people in the north who are reaching their limits with smorgas worship and trying to migrate south to stick solely with us. And Baasha, like Jeroboam before him, is keen on keeping them on his side of the border. You can read all about that in Second Chronicles 16. Baasha's been working on fortifying his southern border with Judah both to keep his people from leaving and to have a strong military line there. He's even been trying to push into Asa's territory a bit while doing so. Sound familiar? We should also note that we recognize that referring to Israel's southern border with Judah is a bit on the redundant side, equal to saying the United States' southern border with Mexico, as in there is no eastern, western, or northern border with them. Now, this is the point at which Chronicles catches back up kings, and they're in sync for a while, for the four of you who are actually tracking that. Because here Asa makes that alliance with the king of Aram, whose territory is northeast of Israel, the area known as Syria in your habitat. Asa sends King Ben-Hadad all kinds of loot that Shishak didn't find and take back to Egypt. This is to persuade King Ben-Hadad to shift his support to the south. The Aramite king obliges by nipping at Baasha's northern borders, which is what Asa's been hoping for, as it draws Baasha's attention and some of his substantial and greater resources away from the south, a diversionary tactic known by every general from Sun Tzu to George Patton and beyond. This attack at another front allows Asa to retake lost ground in the south and shore up his own line there. Sounds brilliant, but for one missing crucial element. Can you see it? Think about David on his good days. Yep, that's it. Or rather, I am it. Asa slips into trusting in his own devices like a lumberjack slipping into a flannel shirt. He doesn't check in with me, doesn't ask me for guidance, doesn't even ask me to bless what he's already decided to do on his own without my input. Many of you do this to us all the time. This behavior is in stark contrast to Asa's immediate appeal to us when Ethiopia was swooping into his southern borders. That was back in Second Chronicles 14.11. He's made what seems to be a good move without first confirming that it's a God move as well. His failure to consult me warrants a forced consultation visit from a new prophet, Hanani, in order to help Asa see the discrepancy, and naturally to mete out a bit of resultant consequence. Instead of the peace he was engineering for himself, Asa will be at war for the remainder of his reign. Now, you've seen in those around you, and in yourself for some, that folks who think quite highly of and place a great deal of stock in themselves and their cleverness often have an accompanying temper to go along with that whole package. They've got everything figured out, and me forbid anyone messes up their genius plans. Well, King Asa is cut from this very cloth, though he's lid on his temper so far. Now it flares, though, 
and he throws my prophet Hanani in the stocks in person, and lashes out at random others as well. Second Chronicles 16 for the whole context, verses 7 to 10 for Hanani's mission from me. The final detail of Asa's reign, following quickly on the account of his fit of rage, is that he is struck with an unknown disease in his feet, mentioned in both accounts, during the final two years of his life and reign. Second Chronicles 16.12 and 1 Kings 15.23 Though many assume so, this disease is not described as having come directly from my hands as disciplinary consequence for the rough treatment Asa deals my prophet and random other innocents in his rage. Asa's final episode does, however, provide one last opportunity to underscore his core issue. The chronicler points out that even in his disease he did not seek Yahweh, but sought help from physicians. Not that I've got anything against doctors, mind you. I inspire, bless, and use them all the time. It's Asa's self-sufficiency in it all that's the problem to the very end. It is your self-sufficiency that's the problem as well. You get that, right? We are still working on the whole seek God first in all, then walk on the way I reveal method of doing things, in Asa and the other kings, and in you. Now, by the time Asa is entombed with honors in the city of David, the northern kingdom has changed hands five times. When King Baasha died a few minutes ago in this episode, his son Elah was placed on his throne. Because Baasha did not heed our warnings and continued to lead the people far away from us, his consequences come home to roost. What he did to Jeroboam and his house is done to Baasha and his. When Baasha's son Elah is barely two years into his own reign, the drunken young king is assassinated by his chariot commander. Said charioteer Zimri follows the prior regime's precedent and systematically wipes out all living heirs in Baasha's line. And it's almost like a game of tag there for a while. Zimri takes the throne for himself. We've mentioned that he's a chariot man. Well, the army, the boys on their feet in the infantry, figure that if the throne is up for grabs, then their commanding general needs to be on it, instead of some lazy wagon rider. Commanding General Amri is made king by his troops and has popular support among the people as well. So when he and his troops surround Zimri in the palace in Tirzah, Zimri immediately surrenders the throne to him. Sort of. He burns the place down around himself, choosing his own end rather than risking a more prolonged and painful death at Amri's hands. In the meantime, a fellow named Tibni tries to be king for a while, but Omri's party proves stronger, and Omri eclipses that challenger too. Tibni also handily dies, with no word in the manual on how or why. Hmm. Well, with the tears of palace burned down and haunted by the ghost of Zimri, Omri sets himself a new capital, acquiring some nearby defensible high ground fortifying it, and naming it Samaria after the fellow who owns it before Omri's purchase. No, his name wasn't Sam, it's Shemer, 
Shemaria just drifted easily to Samaria. That's where Omri's innovation of government ends. He then proceeds to stay firmly in the now well-worn rut of idol worship. He's an active fellow, though. Archaeologists in your habitat have found reference to his conquest of his southeastern neighbor Moab on the rather plainly named Moabite stone, readily visible at the Louvre, in case you'll be in Paris soon enough for Omri to still be on your radar. In spite of this southeastern campaign, Omri remains at peace with Asa in Judah, who's into his 31st year of rule when General Omri takes Israel's throne. From this point on, a succession of kings in Israel proceed from the house of Omri. Since Omri wasn't the one to kill his predecessor, Zimri did that to himself, Omri's offspring do not suffer the same fate as Jeroboam's or Baasha's. Thus the throne of Omri is inherited by his son Ahab. The more you learn about him, the more you'll wonder why anyone in later habitats would ever name their son Ahab, and then conclude that anyone so named would surely be easily predisposed to obsession with a white whale. Ahab takes the throne in the thirty-eighth year of Asa's blessedly lengthy Judean reign. If you listened close and did the math, Omri had a good round symbolic seven enthroned years. Ahab, 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 what are we going to do with Ahab? Ahab is a piece of work from start to finish. So much so, he deserves his own episode. So we'll stop for now and remark that even though the vast majority of these kings are doing things their own way without checking in with me, I am still moving the Abra plan forward. While their memory is tarnished by their duplicity, my purposes are moving forward. When you look around at your own habitat and see that the idolaters seem to be winning, don't be fooled by those appearances. I am still here. We are still on the way, moving forward with the Abra plan, and our purposes, our rescue of the human race, will not be stopped by a handful of selfish rulers. They're mortals. I've got the long game all sewed up. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support what we do, Give us a review on iTunes or Facebook, then share this podcast with your friends. There's a link to the very first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.